Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to NucleCast. Of course, as always, I'm Adam Lowther, and today we have with us, he just so happens to be a friend of mine, a former neighbor while we were down at Barksdale, Major Will Perry. He is currently the Chief of Helo Operations at 20th Air Force, and I thought having Will come on would be great because one of the topics we have never yet discussed is the role of of helicopters in the nuclear missile fields. It's, you know, it's one of those things we, we just expect to be there, but we don't often talk about. And so who better than the chief of Hilo ops to come and talk about Helos and, you know, we're, we're getting new aircraft. We're, you know, it's a, it's a busy world right now. There was some reorganization a few years ago. And there's just a lot to know that I bet many of our listeners by the end of this show, we're going to be, I didn't know that. That was interesting. So with that, Will, welcome to the show. Thanks, Adam. I really appreciate the invitation. And uh, yeah, it's good to see you again, man. So let's talk helos in the missile fields. You know, the missile fields, it's a, you know, it's a huge area. And to cover that, those distances from LFs and LCCs in a rapid, you know, manner, helos are sort of the perfect way to do that. And particularly if, you know, if there's a security concern and you need to get out there, secure a site, tell us about the mission that they perform, you know, how do, what do they do? How do they do it? You know, what, what is this role that helos play? Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, I think, uh, I mean, you know, to your point, right. 33,600 square miles, right. The size of South Carolina with all three missile wings combined. Right. And, and our biggest, Malmstrom is is 14,000 square miles alone. So just trying to get folks around, right? Cars become um, pretty restrictive as you try and get folks somewhere quickly. Um, so as far as the mission, it's really kind of three-pronged. We've got um, nuclear security operations, which would be our primary mission, right? Being able to, to ferry folks out to a site, uh, our tactical response force or TRF, uh, to be able to respond to an emerging security situation, um, as well as, you know, when we're moving... Uh, convoys off base, uh, having folks overhead, being able to support in that uh, ISR role as well. Um, uh, you know, as second to that, you've got missile field support, right? So, you know, obviously Northern Tier, a lot of bad weather, um, you know, parts may need to go out, people need to go about out, um, operations and maintenance support, all those things uh, are much easier to do when the roads are socked in by snow, uh, by helicopter. Uh, and then we have kind of a, our, our third tier effort, which is defense support of civil uh, authorities, which is um, basically search and rescue essentially is what we'll do to help support uh, any civil folks that are out there trying to get folks specifically in the mountains in Montana. But we see that at all three bases uh, where they're asked for military support. So let's talk a little bit more about sort of the challenges. I, I remember when 
you know, I spent a lot of time at 20th Air Force myself. And I remember when Colonel Pat Brown was was on staff and the big issue then was rollovers in the winter. And so one of the things that helos probably don't do quite as often is have accidents. What kind of, you know, record do you have in terms of flying in some of these adverse conditions? Are are they better at it? You know, do helos have, you know, a good record of flying in adverse weather? Do you have to shut down flight ops? Tell us a, a little bit about that. Yeah, no, I think it's really just a testament to the professionalism of our flight crews. I think aviation, you know, when we talk about risk, uh, it, it's such a critical portion of, uh, are we going to, you know, those go, no go items, are we going to go, are we not going to go? And so whether, uh, you know, whether you're doing this mission or any mission is a critical piece of that. So it's, it's something we are always thinking about as aviators, uh, regardless of the mission. So I think just being baked in that way uh, is probably why you would see less accidents, um, as well as, uh, like I said, just the professionalism of our crews, uh, you know, being able to say, hey, this is unsafe and, and we can't do this. Because I think day to day, crashing a helicopter would appear much more <laughs> catastrophic on its surface. So we, so we uh, you know, if we can't make it there, it's just not worth leaving. Could you give us some examples of what your, what is, how a standard mission might look? What, what is, what is the mission? You know, how often might you do it? What all does it take to do it? Can you sure. give us some, some examples? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there, we kind of have three standard, uh, I'll say NSO missions, right? Nuclear security operations is really growing as, as a tangent or, or an offshoot of nuclear operations, because we're realizing that by having a professional force, uh, both with aviators and our security forces, compatriots on the ground, uh, we're much more capable of, of, of doing the job that we're set out to do. Um, you know, we kind of come from that history of uh, doing parts runs, crew runs, uh, and then as we evolve to doing aerial fires, right? You talked about the reorganization. Those things have changed that dynamic. So a mission within security, uh, nuclear security operations might be one of three things. Three things. We talked about a convoy, um, you know, so that's obviously uh, we have a lot of time to prepare, a lot of mission planning involved with that. And we provide both the aerial surveillance piece of that, as well as if something were to go wrong, uh, we are able to respond uh, with the tactical response forces. Uh, we also do uh, a missile security sweep piece, which is just maintaining kind of that random measure in the missile field to deter any adversary from trying to do something silly. Uh, and then um, tangentially to that, we've got a emergency security response, which is the most reactive and therefore the most challenging um, because we're not able to, to prepare for that um, beyond just our day-to-day training and knowing that it, it might kick off at any time. So one of the things that I've wondered is I've thought you know, if I were the Russians or the Chinese and I wanted to try to take out an LF, a, you know, and, and stop the launch of an ICBM, what would I do? How would I do it? And so I, I've thought a lot about drones and munitions delivered by drones and some other sort of creative ways. Are you guys seeing a lot of these you know, like drones, for example, that are being introduced and that they're, you know, proving problematic as far as security 
over LFs and LCCs? Are you seeing, you know, unexpected, you know, drones or other small aircraft? And and then how do you deal with them when you find out that somebody's flying drones over your secured spaces? Sure. Um, so I would I would say we're in front of that threat from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, we are thinking about it. We are developing measures and countermeasures and mitigating those threats as we can. Um, I, I don't think we're seeing too much of that quite yet, but I think anybody who's watching Ukraine sees the writing on the wall that, um, you know, that's going to become a critical part of, of, of any type of warfare in the future. Yeah. And, and, and as you think about the missions that you fly, what are the most challenging missions? You know, what, what are, what is just really hard to do and, you know, is therefore, you know, potentially more dangerous? What types of missions might those be? Sure. I mean, I would say the most complex is that, uh, is that emergency security response. Kind of like we said, because it's reactive, because we don't have as much time to prepare and because depending on the threat, we're going to throw everything we have at it, right? So we could have five aircraft in the stack above, uh, you know, reacting to an evolving situation on the ground. Um, Operationally, I would say probably the most difficult thing we do is is just because we're CONUS. You know, a lot of our risk calculus starts to look a lot like law enforcement when we talk about, you know, interacting with uh, American civilians, because the assumption is everyone on the ground is an American civilian. Um, So, you know, that being able to identify a hostile threat uh, day to day, um, the risk acceptance there is, is, is through the roof, right, until they actually execute something. So, um, again, we find ourselves reactive often. So preparing for those through shoot-don't-shoot scenarios, being able to mitigate uh, measures through um, things on the ground that may be able to detect or or start to anticipate those sorts of threats. Now, there's been a, you know, the Air Force has wanted a new helicopter, and it's getting one. There's been a reorganization of the helicopter force in the missile field. Can you talk about, you know, tell us what was this reorganization and then tell us about what is this new helicopter? Why did you need it? What's it going to do for you? Sure. Um, so we, you know, like most of us know in the, in the community, we had um, some troubled times there around 14, 15, 16. Uh, and the FIP program was to have the force improvement program in order to, to fix many of the wrongs that I'd say, um, were identified kind of right off the bat, and then as folks started to dig a little bit deeper, uh, one of those things was was the helicopter organizational structure. Um, we were working for the missile wings, which I think was very efficient, but there was a lack of operational knowledge of what we did at the higher level. So what the group gave us was a, an O6 uh, who's organic to our community, who's able to make those higher level decisions and represent the community in a way that we didn't really have before. Um, you know, what we've seen as a result is the emergence of nuclear security operations uh, kind of as an expertise uh, within our community. So that's from an infill exfil perspective, being a, a much more robust tactical uh, presence in the battlefield with the security forces, as well as being able to execute aerial fires. Um, so that was something that came out of that as well, um, starting to be uh, more of a robust arms uh, aerial delivery platform. So that's been uh, really good for our community in, in terms of professionalism and evolving from what was colloquially known as the flying club uh, to the professional aviators that we are today. Yeah. And so you're, would you say that 
that nuclear that you know ICBMs are more secure than they were before because of this transition. So we, we've got higher levels of security out of helicopter reform. I, I think definitely uh, our presence has improved. So you know, from my perspective, I wouldn't say we're more secure. I think we've been able to offset some of the things that were uh, in place before, where we talk about numbers of folks on the ground. As we look at that, um, we're able to um, be a force. A force enabler and a force multiplier in a way that we weren't before. Yeah. And then, so let's talk about this new helicopter. Uh, mm-hmm. You're getting one. Why did you need it? And what is the new one doing for you? Sure. And, 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 you know, I don't want to speak out of turn. It was Stratcom who came, came right up and said, Hey, it's not, doesn't meet our range payload survivability. Um, you know, essentially all the things that we want to be able to do to address those, that distance equation uh, that we talked about at the beginning of the show. So this new helicopter is going to improve all those things, right? Often uh, with the Huey, we're having to make a little bit of calculations of, do we want to have more security forces members on board, more ammo, more gas, right? And our gas equals to uh, both range as well as lawyer time overhead. Um, when we built the requirements for the MH-139, it was, hey, we want all those things and more. Yeah. And is is this new aircraft going to be able because you, you're flying, you know, in some of the more difficult parts of the country, particularly in the winter and e- even in the summer. I mean, you can uh, Cheyenne is a very windy place, as as is, you know, Great Falls and elsewhere. You know, it's funny that we're, we're talking about this because one of the few times I've flown into to Great Falls, it was we flew in at about a 30 degree angle to try to, you know, straighten out as we landed just because it's such a windy, challenging place to fly. And so I'm sure for you as somebody who's flown in those areas, is this new helicopter going to allow you to fly in more adverse conditions than the Huey does or, or is it about the same? Uh, I would say definitely more. I mean, it has a limited uh, ice protection system, things that, you know, weren't even imaginable when the Huey was developed. Um, it has, uh, it's much more automated, you know, so when we talk about uh, the brain bites available to the avi- aviators in the helicopter, you know, being able to kind of punch into your systems and then start to concentrate on the mission and what you're going to prepare for, for that evolving situation on the ground. It's a huge benefit to, to a helicopter like this. Uh, it's also a lot faster so once we get into, you know, windy situation, obviously with a tailwind, right, all, all systems go. Uh, with a headwind, it makes it a little more difficult. But uh, as we're able to speed up with a faster helicopter, that's going to get us there that much quicker as well. Yeah. And so just from a, I guess we're at that time where we have to take a quick break. But when we get back from the break, I want you to think about this. For our listeners who, who don't really understand flying in the missile fields, can you give them a couple of sort of great stories? The ones you tell your kids, maybe the ones you tell at a campfire of those, you know, hair raising examples from, from your own experience or from, you know, other guys and gals you've flown with. And so we'll, we'll talk about that. We're talking to major Will Perry's the chief of flight off of Hilo operations at 20th air force. And you're listening to Nuclecast, and we'll be right back. This 
episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back and we're talking to Will Perry. And he was going to tell us some great stories about flying in the missile fields. Will, entertain us. All right. So every good aviation story starts with uh, one of two things, right? I think I put my hands like this. (laughs) So no kidding. There I was. Uh, So there we were uh, in the missile field uh, supporting a convoy as as the weather started to come in on us. Um, We had a crew of, of three along with four security forces in the back. And uh, this is this would be, would have been a standard operating day in a missile field like that because often that weather comes in um, and and you're not able to anticipate it. So the weather came down to about 100 feet. So we're we're cruising about 75, 100 feet in the helicopter, uh, trying to stay with the mission. And at this time, um, we're thinking about what we call cross-loading our security forces members to the convoy, right? So they're still able to support, but as helicopters, it's getting a little dicey for us to stay overhead. So as we start to coordinate that, uh, my uh, aircraft commander at the time turns on uh, the heater. And as he turns on the heater, a thick black smoke starts to come out of the front of like the defrost of your car, right? So right in the face of us flying. (laughs) Um, Not where you want to be that close to the ground uh, in some poor weather, not able to climb um, with potentially a fire on your helicopter. So uh, that's the great part about a helicopter is, you know, in fixed wing, you're, you're turning towards the nearest airport, you're trying to figure out what you're going to do, you know, you start working that emergency. Uh, from our perspective, it's, hey, let's get this thing on the ground. It's, it's, I'm pretty sure it's on fire. Uh, so he turns off the heat, which, which stops the, the swell of smoke in the face. And, uh, and we get back to that down to the ground, we land to a road, right? Nuclear security is paramount at this point. So we're safe, we get the security forces off. We push them to the convoy, and they're able to crossload to a different vehicle. Uh, and we start working, working the fire. We find out that an engine has dumped all its oil, and the oil is now burning, and um, the fire is arrested. Uh, best part of the story, as we're sitting there on the ground, uh, I was married at the time. I think my aircraft commander was married at the time, but we had a young, single uh, flight engineer in the back, and we had... Uh, Three students who were home for Thanksgiving, I think, there in the town of Stanford in, in uh, Malmstrom, Montana, and uh, three young girls that were students there at, at the local at the local college, home for the for the holiday, uh, stopped and picked us up some coffee, brought it back, <laughs> uh, cavorted a little bit with our flight engineer. So we made some friends there locally too. It was, it was uh, not the best of days, but it ended well. Yeah, that, that is that's funny. So as as you think about the future needs of the Hilo force and, and sort of where you are and where you need to be to continue to perform this security mission. And, and, you know, it's a mission that if you were to talk to many within the, the nuclear field who perhaps don't have an operational background, they probably wouldn't even know about the role that Hilo's perform. So what would you say as you look forward to five years, 10 years, 15 years, what do you still need to do to make this a, a, 
you know, a better mission, a more secure mission, a more effective mission? What's still left to do? Sure. I mean, I think for the next five to 10 years, everybody's focused on the MH-139, right? So, so being ready to bed down those helicopters and building the margin in so that we're not uh, exceeding beyond our capacity as we try to fly the Huey and the MH-139 and represent all of the missions that we have to perform. Because, you know, a normal Air Force flying unit will be able to stand down and the other flying units can take over their mission, uh, you know, overseas. For us, that's not the case. Nuclear security doesn't get a day off. So we're going to have to maintain uh, our full mission set on every on the last day the Huey flies and on the first day the MH-139 flies. So, and, so that's kind of, sorry, go ahead. And is that going to be a big transition to go from the Huey to the 130? Is that going to be a, a big transition or is there a lot of similarities? Or Certainly, yeah. I mean, it's going to be a big change for us, uh, as I said, in automation. Um, but we're getting something newer, faster, stronger, better. Um, so if we continue to do things the way we've always done them, uh, I think we're, you know, General Race to talk about the new, new, right? Mm -hmm. Let's do things with our new toys in a new way so that we're able to maximize the effectiveness of, of everything that they bring to bear. So if that's one of the big things that you're working on, what else are you needing to do in the years ahead to improve this? Is there still, now that you've reorganized, are there still things that you now need to tweak or do you have it about right? Is the, you know, sort of the career path for Hilo Aviators, is it where it needs to be? What what else is on the plate to work on in the years ahead? Sure. I mean, I would say there's a lot there. And there, to be honest, there's a lot of unknowns, you know, as we look at application overseas, application in other, other areas, um, I mean, who knows what the Air Force may ask us to do on, uh, as things evolve. Um, but I would say, you know, in the, sh in the kind of macro sense, you know, partnerships is something that the Huey community has not often um, been exposed to because it's an older helicopter that we don't have a lot of partners. There's not a lot of questions left uh, when it comes to the Huey. For us in the MH-139, we're kind of in a unique position because we're not onboarding the new U.S. helicopter. We're onboarding a helicopter that's a derivative derivative of a uh, Italian helicopter that's been flown in nations across the world. So developing those partnerships and being able to to kind of tug at those levers where we've got friends that have been flying this thing for decades and can bring their experience to bear and help us not just from a uh, tactical perspective but from an operational perspective and in, in the managing of those fleets, the logistics, all those pieces that are that are so critical to keeping a, a force like this flying. And, and it, it sort of brings to mind as you're talking about flying with partners for the aviators in the missile fields versus helo pilots elsewhere in the air force. What are some of those differences? Are you, are you sort of a unique group that it comes in early and spends your entire career flying for, you know, the nuclear mission, or do you go back and forth how is all of, how is that working out? And, and, you know, in many respects in the past, if you were a nuke, if you were a nuke guy or gal, that was, that could be sort of a dead end path. Whereas now they, you know, like for missileers, for example, the whole career field has changed and it's, it's been built to help promote and grow people. How is it for you as an aviator, as opposed to those elsewhere? Sure. I mean, a lot of that would be, it depends, because we are rotary wing, which is not 
the Air Force's expertise. Um, so we're kind of the subset. Um, we are, uh, it depends on the generation you come from. So I went to uh, undergraduate pilot training with all of the air, all of the pilots in the Air Force, right? And we tracked out helicopters, heavies, fighters, bombers. Um, and so, so I have that shared experience. Uh, currently, our, our system is changed to undergraduate helicopter training. So we're receiving folks right out of ROTC, um, right out of the academy. So it's a little bit different subset, different experience. Uh, I think we're, we're resulting in a lot more professional helicopter aviators, um, but they are lacking that understanding of, of some of our peers. Uh, at a macro sense, I think similarly, uh, folks of my generation deployed as air advisors. Uh, a lot of them have spent time in the HH-60s in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, so they have uh, a bit more combat experience than folks that um, I'd say in the current, now that we've kind of stood down uh, a lot of those overseas deployments, uh, the experience set is a, is a bit different. Um, I think as an 11H, right, which is a rescue pilot, uh, there are a lot of opportunities out there for us. And specifically in Global Strike Command, we've seen a migration from kind of the CSAR mission being kind of the big brother uh, with a much larger uh, set and, a, and much more importance uh, on, the, on the Air Force stage. And now we're seeing Global Strike Command, our numbers are going up as we look at onboarding these new helicopters and, uh, and that by increasing instead of decreasing, which makes a huge difference. So uh, I think we're seeing a bit of a role reversal there, which will be um, give us some opportunities as well. So as you think about like cultures and you, if you take the two big helicopter communities and, you know, Global Strike and the nuclear mission versus combat search and rescue rescue and special operations. How would you compare those cultures and what are the strengths and weaknesses of both? Sure. I mean, I, there's a lot of, of flow between. So the cultures end up being very similar. So, so often, you know, what we in the community may perceive as, as big differences, you know, it's kind of a, it's like you'll fight with your brother, but when anybody else steps in, you, you know, we're, yeah. we're back to back. Um, you know, I'd say it looks a lot like that, but um, definitely, you know, I, I think kind of what we talked about, about uh, starting to look at some of those differences in dealing with American civilians, uh, that creates a dynamic, I think, that um, that has a little bit more focus on risk calculus. Uh, than maybe some of our partners. And that's not to say that they're not focused on that as well, but it's a difference. Yeah. As you were to think about our listeners who are, you know, there's a good chance that for many of them, it's sort of the first time they're hearing about helos and the role they play in the, in the missile field. And so as we come to the end of the show, what is sort of the big takeaway that you would have them remember six months or a year from now about your profession and what Hilo aviators do for the nuclear community? Sure. Um, you know, I, and I hesitate to do this, but I think it's necessary to speak for kind of the nuclear security operations mm -hmm. enterprise, because I think that's what we really represent. Um, and, and I think just that criticality of, you know, we have kind of the most dangerous uh, situation, which might be someone getting a hold of a weapon. Um, but we have, you know, what, in my opinion, what might be the most likely, which is just creating some chaos here stateside to, to have us turn inward instead of outward. And that 
that nuclear security operations enterprise is what uh, a deters that right much in the it's it's a it's a subset and a kind of little brother of nuclear deterrence writ large uh, a lot of similarities there it's hard to prove that negative um, as well as uh, just being able to to maintain deterrence as well as react to any situation that does evolve in a way that closes that down, allows us to move on and focus on what's important. All right. Well, Will Perry, Chief of Hilo Ops at 20th Air Force in Cheyenne, Wyoming, F.E. Warren Air Force Base. You know, I tell you, I've been to Cheyenne, you know, at every month of the year, obviously, and I cannot think of an instance of there being a month where I, I haven't seen snow. July, August, September. I've seen snow in Cheyenne, so it's a it's a it's a challenging uh, environment to operate in, and you guys play an important role. So thanks for coming on Nuclecast today to talk about the role of helos in the nuclear mission. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate it. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us on this episode of Nuclecast, and we'll see you next time. Well, a few afterthoughts. It's always good to hear about something new that we've not really talked about before. And so helo operations, not not our normal topic. And just to hear how the community has grown and changed to create a professional force, whereas it was sort of a pickup game in the past. And to know that that they've really built out this whole approach to growing and and building aviators, you know, in the the Hilo community for the missile force, that I think is is probably the the biggest takeaway I had. And I thought it was really informative, just to see sort of where they've come because the force improvement program and the the issues that arose in the in 2014, you know, I was part of the team that investigated that. So it, it's good to see that we've made a lot of improvements over that, you know, eight year period. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Krumthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NucleCast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.